Well, if you have a copy of the scripture, I want to invite you to open in the book of Luke, chapter 2. That's where we've been. That's where we're going to finish our Christmas series here this morning. Um, As we've been journeying through Luke, chapter 2, we've been seeing these different moments where these different characters within the Christmas story uh, of moments of of longing, of looking, anticipating, and the word that we're using is, is waiting. And so I was thinking about the, the fact that at times when it comes to Christmas, so often it's associated with waiting. S- some of you are fanatical about this, that when it's December 26th, you're like, oh, it's just 364 more days or 365 more days until Christmas next year. I can't wait for it. I've had moments of where it's February and I've had family members be like, what do you, what do you want to do for Christmas next year? And I'm like, it's February. Um, but some are just so eager and excited about the anticipation and the excitement of Christmas and especially for children. And I, and I found some letters that I thought were pretty interesting that I wanted to share with you. Some of them are a little bit dated, but some letters that were rented, written to, uh, to, to Santa. And uh, I just want to hear some of these kids of what they're anticipating. One says this, Dear Santa, uh, I want a puppy. I want a playhouse. Thank you. And I've been good most of the time. Sometimes I'm a bit wild. Another one, a little bit older, a little bit more dated, says, Dear Santa, I'm not going to ask for a lot, but here's my list. The Etch-A-Sketch animator, two packs of number two pencils, Crayola fat markers, and the big gift, <laughs> my own color television. Well, hang on. Maybe you could drop the pencils. I don't want to be really selfish. Uh, Here's one from a four-year-old. Dear Santa, I'll take anything because I haven't been that good. Uh, That's that's really sad. What household are you in, young man? Uh, And then the last one is, Dear Santa Claus, when you come to my house, there will be cookies for you. But if you're real hungry, you can use our phone and order a pizza to go. (laughs) Precious, precious child. And so... So for kids especially, but also for, for adults, we, we do we anticipate Christmas for the most part, and, and we, we enjoy it, but there's, there's waiting that is involved. And I know many of you have been sitting on the edge of your seat, and some of you just may be sitting at like your kitchen table going, I can't wait for next Sunday, because Stephen teased and anticipated that there's this other character in the first Christmas pageant that he's going to share with us, and I've had to wait a whole week, but the waiting is over. I know you're, you're excited, but last week we got to see the first character of the, of the Christmas pageant that oftentimes we don't look at. He's not in our nativity scenes. He's not on our Christmas cards, and that was Simeon. And, and today, uh, we're going to look at someone else. So look with me, Luke chapter 2, verse 36. Luke 2, 36. And it says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Pray with me. Father, Father, help us in this room this morning and those joining us online uh, to look to you and to know that you sent your son as Savior as consolation, as comfort. And Father, I pray that today that we can see in the the aspect and attitude of of, of redemption. So Father, I pray that we would set our affections upon your son this morning. And where you sit right now, would you pray for yourself that you would receive what God has to say to you today through his word and also respond to what he has to say to you through his word.
And if you would, would you pray for me that I will be a help to you and clearly speak God's truth, that we will receive it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want you to see this morning is as we see this character of this Christmas story, Anna, um, she's waiting in anticipation. But what we see in this first couple of verses is her devotion to the Lord. And I hope that that's something that we could see that would be an aspect within our own lives. So if you're taking notes, just kind of that first thing, devotion to the Lord. We see you with her, but do you see it within your own life? Um, we, we get a bit of information. This is really just a brief snapshot, and we never see or hear of her again in Scripture. But here she is, Anna. It says that she is the prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Uh, the thing that I wanted to kind of point out is it says here that she's advanced in age, and then it gives a lot of description of, of how this all works out, the math. Now, there are some English translations that, that will say th- this was her age, and some will say this, but, but what we find is, is, is in this day and time, it would not have been unusual at all uh, for, for a young woman to get married at a very young age, anywhere from maybe 12 to 15, 12 to 16. That was a, not an uncommon thing. They married very, very young. So for our purposes, we're going to say, let's say she married at the age of 13. So she marries at the age of 13, and it says here that she was married seven years, and then her husband died. So around the age of 20, if we're doing the math this way, She has lost her husband. He has died. She's now a widow. And we see that she does not marry again. Um, In fact, some some translations will say it was she was basically widowed uh, and lived 84 years after she became a widow. If you take that math, it's 84 plus the age of 13 when she got married plus seven years of marriage. It would be about 104 years old. Uh, the translation that I have and a lot of others that, I, that I've been reading is that it, it seems more likely that she was maybe 13 when she got married. We do know she was married for seven years. So let's say she's 20. And then until the age of 84, this moment of the story happens. So she's been serving for, let's say, 64 years. So whether she's 84 years old or 104 years old, regardless, this is a woman dedicated and devoted to God and to his ministry, and to the people here in Israel. And I just want that to be a reminder to us that as, as we continue to, to age and to mature, that our devotion, let it not wane and let it not cease. Let, let it continue to thrive. Like what, what we see here is it says in verse 37, she never left the temple. She served night and day. Since her husband died, she dedicated herself to fasting and praying in the temple. Um, we, we saw, if, if, if you were with us, if not, you can go back and watch, but we went through the Sermon on the Mount, and in that sermon that Jesus preaches on that mountainside, he teaches on prayer and fasting, and, and you can go back and listen to see what he had to say about that, but one of the, the things that I highlighted for us in that time was that we, we kind of get the idea of prayer, but sometimes with fasting, it seems to be perhaps one of the, if not the most neglected spiritual discipline that we practice as Christians, as followers of Jesus, and yet... As with prayer, Jesus assumes that you, uh, a devoted follower of God, will practice this discipline as much as you do prayer. Because he says not if you fast, but when you fast. And we, we talked about this idea that when you fast, it, it's, it's not just about trying to, to, to do something just to be like, oh God, I want to hear what you have to say. There's maybe an aspect to that, but it's saying I'm choosing to, to fast from something, abstain from something that is 
obviously important. We need food to, to live, but I'm choosing to, to fast from that so that I can feast with you because I, I do want to hear from you. I do want to take that time that I might otherwise prepare a meal, eat a meal, clean up the meal. I could use that to be completely devoted and dedicated to you. And we see that that seems to be a part of the rhythm of, of Anna. And one of my questions was, well, how is she serving night and day in the temple? And some of my research, I found that apparently there were some apartments that would surround the temple courtyard. And there were those that would live there to, in order to serve there regularly, daily, faithfully. They would actually come alongside the Levites and the priests who were also conducting the work there in the temple. And so we see this, again, just this snapshot of, of Anna. And I just wanted you to see a little bit of who she is and, and, and what the Bible has to say about her, her devotion to the Lord. The second thing I want you to see is that in verse 38, she shares of this declaration of the Lord. She, she speaks uh, to others about the redemption of, of Israel, about the one who's going to come along and, 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 and save and redeem. And so it says here that, that in the same way that we saw last week, Simeon had been looking, it seems to be this Anna has been looking and looking to share, but, but her waiting seems to have a bit of a different orientation. Um, you'll remember if you were with us last week, if not, go back uh, and, and watch it. But last week we saw with the story of Simeon that Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus have made their way to the temple here in Jerusalem. Jesus is about 40 days old. He's just a sweet little baby. And here he is, and they've arrived at the temple for two specific purposes. One was the presentation of Jesus. We, we saw that last week, that Mary and Joseph are going to present Jesus to the Lord. But then also, to fulfill the custom of the law, they were also going to have a time of purification for Mary. This was something that you would do if you'd given birth as a, as a woman, that you would go through this process because it was according to the custom of the law. And then here, we saw last week that Simeon just happens to arrive at the temple. But we know it's not a coincidence. We know it's not just a, a chance meeting. Three different times the Holy Spirit is included in the story of Simeon. That the Holy Spirit is leading and directing in this moment because it's not coincidence, it's not fate, it's not chance, it's God at work in order that Simeon, who had been promised, you will see the Messiah, you will see the Christ before you die. And here he is in the temple and he runs into Mary and Joseph and then he sees baby Jesus and he's like just laser focused because he knows that this is the one that he has been longing and waiting and anticipating and looking for, the Christ the Messiah, the consolation, the comfort. This is what he's been eager to, to see. He says last week, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, God. And again, as I mentioned last week, he's not looking at a, at a scroll or at an altar. He's looking at a person. Our salvation is found in a person and his name is Jesus. That's who he's looking at. Even as a baby, he is just moved in this moment. And what I love is that if you go back and read, Simeon is so excited, he can't help but just be like, I got to praise God in this moment. I got to worship God in this moment. I got to give thanks to God in this moment because my eyes have seen your salvation. I've seen Jesus, and I, I can't be the same. And, and what we find is that when Simeon's doing this, he's not doing this in any kind of self seeking way of where the worship is about me, or maybe if I appear a certain way, people will watch me and go, well, that seems to be a really righteous and devout man because his hands are raised or because he's singing really loud or he's very animated or demonstrative. And, and so that guy obviously loves God. No, 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 no. 
He, he is moved and his affection is set upon what he has seen because God has revealed it to him that there is salvation. And not just for you and your fellow countrymen, but for all the world, for the Gentiles. This, this, is, this is a glorious moment for all the world. And he worships. It's, it's, it's so much of it's not look at me, it's, it's, it's look at Jesus. And when he does this, do you notice that it's at this moment, I can't help but wonder if a, a bit of a commotion hasn't kind of brewed up just a little bit because you're in the temple, it's noisy, it's loud, there's a lot of different things that are kind of going on in these different courtyards, and, and then all of a sudden there's enough commotion that Anna the prophetess, who is serving night and day, it doesn't say here that she's been led by the Holy Spirit to be like, oh, there's, there's the Messiah, there's the anointed one. But because of someone else's worship and praise of the Messiah, she seems to be drawn to what's going on over here. And she begins to see and notice. Do you realize when you worship God, not for, not for yourself in the sense of look at me, but when you worship God, you're pointing people to Jesus. Tonight, when we observe the Lord's Supper, do you know that the Lord's Supper is a, an evangelistic endeavor? We read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, whenever Paul is talking to the church of Corinth. He, he's saying that, that we're proclaiming Christ in this moment. That whenever we're in even like a, a Lord's Supper type setting or in a worship setting like this, sometimes we think because we show up here and we make assumptions and we got to be careful with that, that, well, if you're here and you're at church and you're regular and faithful, you're a Christian. You know Jesus. You love Jesus. It's like, no, 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 no. We don't know, but we hope that you have a relationship with Christ. But hopefully in this moment, as you see or hear maybe those who are leading up here or those who are, are beside you as they're just worshiping God and they don't, they're not really thinking about the person next to them, they're just thinking about God and they're worshiping Him. And you see that and you begin to go, what is moving you in such a way that your affections are set upon someone that we can't even see? You're proclaiming God. You're glorifying God. We want to bring attention to God. Sometimes I wonder if, if us as the church and us as Mission Point, of, of, of we could be that sense of attractional if, if we were just proclamational of, of what we have, of what we're declaring, of who we're focused on. Do people go, man, who is this Jesus? I, I, I hear about him. I've grown up in the States. I have a pretty good idea of who he is. I've gone to church. I've gone to Sunday school. But you behave in a way that is different from other people who call themselves Christian. You seem to be a follower of Jesus. There's a difference in you because you're just your whole heart and your mind and your soul is just drawn and devoted to Jesus. Your worship matters. How you engage in worship, lead in worship, all of it, it definitely matters. And at this point, it's because of this commotion, Anna shows up. And I love it. Look at verse 38. At that very moment, at the moment that Simeon is saying, my eyes have seen your salvation. Here's Anna coming up, wanting to see what it's all about, and she begins to give thanks to God. She's like, this is the one. This is the one we've been looking forward to. This is the one that we've been longing for. This is the one that we've been waiting for. And she's so moved by it, she has to continue to speak. It's not that enough for her to contain it within herself. It's her expression of worship of, i got to go share and tell this with other people uh, continually of those who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, that word redemption, we're going to camp here for just a moment. 
That word redemption is one that we, we use often within the, within the parameters, within the walls of a place like this. But I want us to, to take a little bit of a look at it. We're going to go a little, uh, little systematic theology for just a moment, so, so humor me. But I think, it's, I think it's essential and important. The word redemption uh, would have very much been something that the nation of Israel would resonate with because it would make them think of that word of perhaps the biggest moment in their history, which was they were enslaved in Egypt, and then they were redeemed by God out of Egypt. Specifically, there have been all these different things that had taken place, these different plagues, in order to try to move the heart of Pharaoh, even though Pharaoh's heart had been hardened, that God's people would be let go out of bondage and slavery and captivity in Egypt so they could be set free. And so plague after plague comes, Pharaoh says, no, 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 you can't go. And then finally, the 10th plague, the Passover, of where the death angel is going to pass over. And if you do not obey the word of God and do what he told you to do, which is to take a lamb, sacrifice the lamb, take the blood of that lamb, and put it on the doorposts of your home, that if you don't do that, the angel's not going to pass over, but that death angel was going to take the firstborn. Uh, but if you did, the angel was going to pass over. And there was this sense and this understanding of, of redemption. It was the ultimate redemption example or story that they would point and look back to, the release and the, and the pardon of these, of these captives. Another way to put it is that they were redeemed from Egyptian slavery by the blood of the lambs at Passover. So redemption, what is it? For our purposes, we're going to have kind of a working definition. I believe it'll be up on the screen. Uh, redemption is this, if you want to jot it down. To secure the release or recovery of people or things by the payment of a price. To secure the release or recovery of people or things by the payment of a price. Now, I'll give you a little bit to, 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 to jot that down, but to kind of simplify it maybe just a little bit is I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take out a couple of words and just maybe, maybe write it down like this because that's from a, a Bible dictionary and uh, I just want to kind of break it down just a little bit more to secure the release of people by the payment of a price. To secure the release of people by a payment of the price of a price. To be redeemed means that a price has to be paid. It's a little bit different from the idea of salvation, biblically speaking. Oftentimes, and I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with this, but oftentimes we'll interchangeably use this idea of redemption, salvation, Ransom, deliverance, we'll, we'll use them as kind of synonyms of one another. And to a degree, there, there's definitely that nuance that is there. But when, when I, you think of salvation, and even we find that in Luke chapter 2, whenever the angels come to the shepherds and say, a Savior has been born to you, salvation is involved with the work of Jesus upon his life, upon his death, upon his resurrection. Salvation is happening for your soul but it's this idea of rescuing. So when you think of salvation, think of rescue, of snatching you, of saving you from something. But with redemption, a price has to be paid. Redemption is this idea that you were once someone's lost you, they got to get you back. They got to redeem you. They got to they buy you back. And what we see with this is that we know the rest of the story with Jesus, of his life, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, that we are redeemed, bought with a price, we are redeemed from the penalty of sin by the payment of the blood of Jesus. In the same way, when they think of the great redemption story of the nation of Israel 
in Egypt. They knew that we were redeemed from slavery in Egypt by the blood of the lambs on those doorposts. We know today that we are redeemed, that we are bought with a price because of the payment of the blood of Jesus. One way to also think about it is that we are redeemed from something stronger than us by something stronger than that. Does that make sense? This idea that for us to be redeemed, something very strong and powerful has has uh, has captured us, has, has taken us, and we're under its rule and its reign, sin. So we need something greater, more powerful to come along to be able to overthrow that, to redeem us from that situation. And it's not a something, it's a someone, it's Christ. And, and intricately linked within this idea of redemption, when we have been redeemed from something by the payment of something, is, is, is forgiveness. I want you to look at this scripture on the screen. You can jot it down in, in your notes or in the margin of your Bible because, again, let's let scripture interpret scripture. Look at Ephesians 1, 7. Do we have that? Yeah. It says, in him, referring to Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We have redemption. We've been bought with a price. How? Through his blood. A price had to be paid. He laid down everything. It cost him everything. It cost him his life that we would be redeemed, that we would be bought. And what is it linked to? The forgiveness of our trespasses. Look look at um, Colossians 1. Colossians 1, it says this, he rescued us from the domain of darkness. That idea again of rescue, salvation. So you might say he saved us from the domain of darkness, but he didn't just do that. He also, uh, he also transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, uh, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. This is what we have linked together, redemption, forgiveness, bought with a price. So, so for those, I, I want to stop here for just a moment. For those of you who are here or watching online and you're still not quite sure what to do with Jesus, you have heard of him, maybe have grown up a little bit in church, but in your heart of hearts, you don't have any kind of real understanding personally of him redeeming you from anything. You're just not really sure what to do with him. This is what I want you to know of what Jesus has, has come to accomplish for you is that something very great and powerful has captured you. You were born into it and it's sin. But there is one who is greater, who has the ability and is more than capable and powerful enough to not only rescue you, save you from that, from the domain of darkness and sin, but he's able to redeem you, to be able to get you back because he and his work on the cross is far more powerful than sin and even the consequence of sin, death. He gives you forgiveness of your sin, which means you can live this life not feeling with guilt, shame. And he gives you eternal life that you know I have a confidence and a hope and an expectation that when I breathe my last on this earth, I'm, with, I'm absent from the body, but I'm present with the Lord. I'm with Christ. I have victory in Jesus because, not just because it sounds good, not just because I wanted to say that, but because Scripture says it and God accomplished it and it cost Jesus his life, his blood. Sometimes the idea of salvation, redemption, 
Some aspects are simple. It's simple enough for a child to have childlike faith to place their faith in Jesus. But at other times, the work that God is accomplishing is just like, oh, it's amazing, and it begins to blow the mind of what he has accomplished. And maybe, just maybe, if you're watching, if you're here, and you're just like, could he redeem me? Friend, he he has redeemed those people that you compare yourself to, and you're kind of like, I'm a little better than you. He's redeemed so many of them. He can redeem you. That's why he sent his son. A savior has been born unto you. The redemption of Jerusalem has come. You don't need to wait any longer. Receive Christ. Humble yourself and repent. And be, be forgiven of your trespasses of your sin. One of the great passages in the Old Testament, we don't have time to really deep dive into it, but Isaiah 44, go back and read it. Isaiah 44, verses 21 through 23, really highlights God as Redeemer. Now, in that specific passage, God, through the prophet Isaiah, is talking to his people in Israel. And he's basically reminding them that I am your Redeemer. Uh, the people of Israel had rebelled against God. God kept, kept saying, stop worshiping idols, stop worshiping idols. There's going to be consequences to your sin. Stop worshiping idols. If you don't, discipline's going to happen. And eventually discipline did come through the people of Babylon. And uh, as a result, they were in captivity for 70 years. And what we have is this moment of where they're captive. But God's saying, but I'm your redeemer. It's not always. It's discipline. Remember that I am, I am your redeemer. I, I, can, I can overthrow that. When in our in our in our passage today, when Anna sees baby Jesus, notice she does give thanks to God. Her praise and thanks is added to so many up into this point of the Christmas story. Zacharias praises God because of the announcement of the birth of his son, John the Baptist. Mary praises God when the angel comes to her and says, You're gonna have a baby, and uh, you've never been with a man. It's quite miraculous. And she's in awe and she praises God. The angels, we saw. A couple of weeks ago, praise God. The shepherds can't help but because they've encountered the good news of God to share that. Simeon, we saw last week, and now here's Anna, another one. Have you noticed this rhythm? When people encounter the living God, they can't help but talk about Him. So I pray that we would give thanks to God, that we would declare our Redeemer and what He has redeemed us from, that we would continue to speak of Him. As we enter into 2022, we're going to be bringing back in front of us as a church just this emphasis of gospel conversations of that we would not just have this like check mark of like well I need to do this and I need to do that it's like no 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 the rhythm of my life because I have seen my salvation I know Jesus is Lord I can't help but bring him up in conversation in the same way I can bring up sports or the weather or whatever it may be that's just natural for you that you would be like man I just I just want to share and talk about Jesus and yeah, in the context of those that are family members and friends of yours and coworkers who don't know Jesus, we want to share gospel conversations. But I'm talking about that in every aspect, every relationship of your life. I've always found it odd that I can be around Christians and it seems like getting to the conversation of Jesus almost feels forced. And it's like, it should be, it should be something that we should just rejoice in just being like, let's talk about Christ. And it's, it's, it's not unusual. Like it should be something that should be usual for us within the life of, of the church. We want people to hear it. And so at this point, waiting, waiting, waiting. Over the last three weeks, we've studied in our sermon series, waiting for good news we saw in our first week. A Savior was born, Emmanuel. 
God with us. Well, in a little bit, we're going to sing a song when we leave. That's it's a newer. It's not super new, but it's newer, and it's one that I I just I resonate with and I love this idea of Manuel, God with us. Last week we saw again the waiting of the consolation of the comfort. This week the waiting for redemption, deliverance. Again, maybe to break it down even shorter of that definition, deliverance from something by someone, from something by someone, and so. A moment ago, I talked to those of you watching here in the room that you're not quite sure what to do with Jesus. You're, you're on a journey right now of where maybe you are seeking after him. And the prophet Jeremiah says, that's not a bad thing. Seek after the Lord. That's a good thing. But I want to talk to you who would say that I know that I am in a relationship with Christ. But maybe your walk with the Lord over 2021 or maybe the last five years or maybe the last week, and you're just kind of struggling because there has been moments where we as Christians will still slip up. We will still make mistakes. And at times we get to deal with those consequences, not the eternal consequence of death and separation from God, but we do. We deal with those consequences at times. And we just feel, have you ever felt this way? I've, I've sinned, I've done something I know I shouldn't, and I just feel like God is just frustrated with me. And what does he think of me? And so for you, the Christian this morning, the follower of Jesus, I want to ask this question. How does our God, our Redeemer, interact with us when we, His children, sin? How does He interact with you? We have a bunch of different ideas in our head, probably because, probably because of human relationships, if we're like, well, this is how God should interact with me. But what does the Bible say? First thing I want us to see to answer this question, we're going to answer it in two, two ways. When we sin, God reminds us that we still belong to him. Go back and read Isaiah 44. God is reminding the nation of Israel, yeah, you're being disciplined for your sin, but you're still mine. You're mine. You're mine. I've redeemed you. That means I've bought you. I've purchased you. But what we're tempted to believe is, is whenever you sin against God and you know it, or maybe it's that habitual sin in your life that for all of us, maybe it's that struggle, that one thing of like, I just can't seem to get rid of the issue of my anger. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus seemed to hit on a lot of those hot issues that, that a lot of people across the spectrum struggle with. Anger. It's like, oh, I can't deal with my anger. Lust. Oh, I struggle with this lust. Um, judging people. Why do I always judge people? Why am I so judgmental? Just not being able to love people who are just rude to you. Not being a man or woman of integrity. You feel like you got to lie in order to kind of get a leg up all the time. You're like, why do I keep doing that? And you get frustrated with it. And as a result, because it seems like we're continuing to go down that struggle, it's, we're tempted to believe that God maybe doesn't want me anymore, or that he's run out of patience with me, and maybe he's even written me off. And we can begin to revolve our life around something or someone else because he couldn't possibly love me. I couldn't possibly still really, he can't break his word, so I'm going to go to heaven. But on this earth, I just, we, we begin to distance ourselves because we just don't feel like God could possibly love me because of what I've done or continue to do. And because God has created you to be a worshiper, innate within all of you is to give yourself to something. We all worship. We, we are all devoted to something. Some of you, you're maybe just a bit too fanatical about sports. It's great, but it's an idol if you're not careful. Relationships, family is great. God instituted the family, but your spouse is not God. 
Your children are not God. Your grandchildren are not God. Please don't throw stones at me after this. But it's true. There's only one God that is worthy to be praised and give your life and devotion to. And so we make our lives revolve around those things. For some, it's our career, it's our job. Your kids, your grandkids, your spouse, your best friend, your job cannot redeem you, no matter how much you devote yourself to it. I want to remind you that as a Christian, you've been bought with a price. First scripture that came to mind is 1 Corinthians 6. Some of you know your Bible. You might have been thinking of this too. Let's look at that one. 1 Corinthians 6, um, at, uh, at the very end of verse 19, it says, You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You've been redeemed. Bought with a price. Sometimes we don't maybe like this idea because of the idea of someone who's been bought. So we think of slavery. But even we can read in Scripture, in the original Greek, we are to be a doulos. We are to be a slave of Christ. Not just a servant, but a slave. I know that's uncomfortable language because of our uh, country's history. But according to Scripture, it's like we've been on a slave auction block. And we are just in the most evil and vile of circumstances. And a, and a good Lord and Master comes along and says, I want and I'm going to pay the ultimate price, my son, for you. Oh, that's awesome. So, Titus 2. Look at what Titus 2 says. Who gave himself, Jesus, for us. Think, think of redemption. To redeem us. Oh, it's right there. To redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people. Notice this. A people for his own possession. Possession. Bought us. You're his zealous for good deeds. So I, I say this again. How does our God interact with me when I sin? I want you to be reminded from Scripture, not from what some 40-year-old wanting you to feel good about when you go into the Christmas season, is that God reminds you, you are mine. You belong to me. And I know, hopefully, there is conviction of your sin, as it says in 1 Corinthians 7. But don't wallow in your shame and guilt, because I have set you free. Repent. Turn, move forward. Second thing, how does God interact with us when we sin? Second thing is when we sin, God forgives us. God forgives us. We don't have time to go back to it, but we saw it earlier. Ephesians 1, 7, 1 Corinthians, or Colossians 1, 13 and 14. When we sin, God redeems and he forgives us of our sins, forgives us of our trespasses. And this is what I want to close with here this morning. So often when we sin, we don't feel like it's safe to return to God. And the only reason why we would do that is we would do just like our first parents would do. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? They sin against God. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, don't do that. They do. They disobey. They sin. And they did what we tend to do. They ran away. They covered up and they hid. We all do that. We run away. We cover up and we hide. We need to realize as followers of Jesus, it's safe to return to God. What, what I would love to have seen with Adam and Eve, and what I want to see with you and your relationship to the Lord, is don't run away, stay. Don't cover up, confess. Don't hide, reveal. And when you do that, oh, return to Him. That's how uh, uh, that experience and even maybe that feeling that we're so desperate for, that's what we need to experience. But it's hard. It's repentance. 
But at times, we don't return to God if we don't trust His character. Have you ever wondered that? I've sinned against God, and because of my human relationships, I think this is how He might treat me or interact with me. And so I want to keep myself safe and at a distance from Him. So that way, I don't have to deal with his barrage of, of being disappointed in me and being frustrated with me and being angry at me. And, and, and you know, I just, I just don't, I don't trust him. But, but, but think of this. For you, the follower of Jesus, who has been redeemed, bought with a price, the blood of Jesus, when you sin, God is wanting to declare to you, man, return to me. Return to me. Think about the character of God. What kind of person would go through the trouble to redeem someone else? Especially at the cost of their own life. Think about the kind of character that individual has to have if they would be willing to go through that. That kind of person would have to, in order to redeem you at a high price, would have to be two things, powerful and kind. Powerful and kind. Both of those, not one of those. There are plenty of powerful people in this world who are capable, perhaps, of, of redeeming someone, helping someone out, but they don't care, so they're not going to be moved to do anything. On the other side, there might be people who are kind enough to do something, but they don't have the power, the ability, or the resources to do anything about it. But God, because of who He is, He has the ability and the desire to redeem. And that's why I know the character of God, so I don't run, hide, and cover up. I stay, I confess, and I reveal. It says here that it's, it's the kindness of God in Romans 2. It's the kindness of God which leads to repentance. Zephaniah 3, our God is mighty to save. He's both got the power and, and the kindness, the ability to do so. And so for you as a Christian this morning, what I'm inviting you to do, what I'm asking you to do, is to return, confess, reveal, and repent. In just a moment, we're going to sing. We're going to sing about God with us. And what I want to invite you to do, if you are a follower of Jesus, maybe right now in this Christmas season, maybe you've been wrestling and struggling with something in your relationship with God, of, of I feel distant from Him. Man, run to Him. Return to Him. You've been bought with a price. You're not your own. Return to your Redeemer. But for, for those who are lost, for those who are, are not in Christ, man, confess your sin, repent of your sin, and be redeemed from that sin by someone who's powerful enough and kind enough to do something about it. If you would, would you pray with me? I just want you to focus in for just a moment. Because this time is crucial. You prayed to begin with, God, give me the focus that I can set my affection upon what you have to say. So don't get distracted by anything. It can be easy right now to think about a whole slew of things But in just a moment, we're going to sing God with us, Emmanuel. I hope that this morning you have just a little bit better of a glimpse of what that means and what it cost our Savior.
our Redeemer. And as a result, you can't help but contain yourself. Follow the example of the angels, the shepherds, Mary, Zacharias, Simeon, and Anna. I got to praise him. I got to worship him. I got to declare him. It's more important than anything else we could think about right now. But for some of you, not yet. You, you, don't, you, don't, you don't need to sing just yet. You don't need to praise just yet. What you need to do is you need to choose to be reminded, reminded that I still belong to Him, even if I don't feel like it. Choose to remind yourself that God forgives me because He is capable and powerful enough to do so. Some of you right now are maybe struggling with guilt and shame over a sin or that sin that just seems to keep creeping up in your life and you trip again and again and again. Don't leave this place without choosing to believe what Scripture has to say about the character of our God and what He has accomplished. So maybe what you need to do before you praise is you need to pray and you need to reveal and you need to confess and you need to repent. And please do that first. And then as a result, worship, praise Him. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that every one of us as individuals would know exactly what we need to do with what we've heard this morning. Amen. Would you guys stand?